This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. If you have kids or pets, you know stains and odors in your carpet and upholstery are inevitable. But the experts at ChemDry can help. ChemDry removes odors and stubborn stains by sending millions of carbonating bubbles deep within your carpet. ChemDry lifts dirt, urine, and stains to the surface to then be extracted away, giving you a cleaner and healthier home. Call 1-800-CHEMDRY or visit ChemDry.com to connect with your local ChemDry and learn about special offers in your area. That's 1-800-CHEMDRY or visit ChemDry.com today. Sean? Hello? Hello? We're all science people. Science! Exactly. Evolution does some pretty funky things. That is a false fact. The old question in science is how do you know that? Achievement equals skill times effort. That's the recipe for success. I'm about to show you something so cool it'll blow your mind. We can make the world better for everybody. Starting now. Welcome, welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye. This is the show where science rules. It's a call-in show, and if you want to be on the show, and I hope you do, leave us a voicemail at 201-472-0785 or go to askbillnye.com. You know, it's your homepage. Sure it is. You can also check me out on all the social media to find out about our upcoming guests. And today, my friends... I am joined once again by science writer, editor, and dear friend, really, Corey S. Powell. Greetings, Corey. Oh, greetings, Bill. You know, when I'm not having great fun on this podcast with you, a lot of the time I'm also having great fun on Twitter, where I love talking about all the latest science results and hearing how people are reacting to them. It's cool to see how excited people get when there are discoveries that offer hints of something really new, like like a hint of new physics, like dark matter, dark energy, or the dipole moment of the muon or anything related to a theory of everything. So today, it's all coming together in a way that is fun on top of fun for me, because we have a theory of everythingist on this very podcast. Yes, yes. Our guest today is Dr. Clifford Johnson. He is a theoretical physicist at the University of Southern California. He's won awards from the National Science Foundation and the Institute of Physics, and he is a part of the Science and Entertainment Exchange. Dr. Clifford Johnson, welcome to Science Rules. May I call you Clifford? Yes, you may, and it's a pleasure to be here. Everybody wonders about this, about the universe, the theory of everything. Are the four fundamental forces related to the theory of everything or not? But let me start with this. Corey alluded to this earlier. What, what is a muon? Yeah, let's just cut to the chase here. Right. A muon is a very close cousin of everybody's favorite particle, the electron, because of electronics and stuff like that. Uh, so it is just like the electron, but about 200 times heavier for reasons. Well, for reasons. Well, the point, the point, <laughs> the point for being reasons that, that are known, not known, sort of known. Nobody knows. It's just, it's just another copy that's more massive. Um, it's very interesting that there are these patterns, uh, you know, people talk a lot about the standard model and uh, whether we're seeing new physics and things like that. And the standard model is already interesting to physicists like myself because there are patterns in it that are not understood. They're there, and once they're there, you can predict things with them, but uh, they're not understood. And one of them is that there are these families of particles that keep repeating three times. And there's a, there's a doppelganger of the electron, but heavier, and that's the muon. So, so hold on, let's, let's, let's back up and talk about the standard model. What is the standard model? What does it explain? What is it? We mean very specific things in physics when we say models and theories and things like that. But at the end of the day, the key tool we use to describe elementary particles and how they interact with each other are things called uh, quantum field theories. They, they take quantum mechanics and um, uh, put it together in a very particular way that tells you how particles interact, how 
everything in some sense is reduced to being a particle of some kind. So you're either a particle of matter, like an electron or a quark or something like that, and uh, then you interact by various kinds of forces. And those forces themselves are mediated by other kinds of particles, which are, which are, which are exchanged by the particles. So that's it. When you guys, you physicists, talk about fields, it's the exchanging of particles and everything, yeah. everything is quantized. That is to say, everything at some point is, is uncuttable. You get down to what everybody in the good old days thought an atom would be. You couldn't cut it. Atom, uncuttable. Then, then you all found you could smash atoms and get protons and electrons and neutrons. Oh, wait, we'll smash protons and then you get quarks. And they exchange gluons, all right, quantized, indeed. right? So the, very, the various kinds of forces indeed are, are mediated uh, in, this, in this sort of standard model, in this particle physicist way of thinking about everything um, uh, by, by particles as well. So our, our friend, our, our most familiar force is uh, electromagnetism. And light, the thing which we use to see things with our, with our eyes, is made up of uh, little particles called photons. And those are actually also the particles that are exchanged when things interact with each other through the electromagnetic force. So magnets that, when you, to When each things other, touch, that's, that's also electromagnetism. Yes, it is, indeed. Um, the reason you don't fall through a chair is electromagnetic right. propulsion, for exactly. example. Exactly. And so, indeed, that goes to other things as well. So the strong interactions, the strong nuclear interactions are what you were referring to earlier, Bill, and those are exchanged by things called gluons. There's also the weak nuclear action interactions also taking place mostly in the nucleus. But here's the thing about the muon and the mesons and all these guys out there is they don't last that long, right? They're, they they zzz, typically can, they are, they're often unstable and they will, um, nature's always kind of, uh, trying to do the most economical thing. And what that means in this case is that they will typically decay, if they can, to the lightest thing. And so typically muons will indeed find ways of decomposing into lighter things, including the electron. Uh, so that's all simple enough, Corey. <sighs> okay, yeah. Now, hold on, I just want to clarify one thing. So you were talking about these kind of like these three levels, this sort of pattern of three in the standard model. So does that mean like things tend to go from the top to the bottom? <laughs> the, like the, the the third level tends to decay down to the first level, and we're living at level one because that's where everything lands. Uh, kind of, yeah. Um, but what you know, just to finish the point, the standard model then is that uh, is that collection of particles and the forces and the toolbox by which all these different interactions uh, work, and it fits together very nicely. Particles have various properties, and you can compute them, and very, and you can predict various things. And people build giant experiments to go and test these things. And so you have quarks and um, gluons and electrons and all of those things. Uh, and and that's the whole that's the whole thing. Now it turns out that that whole thing could have been just fine with the the quarks that make up the stuff that we're made of uh, up all protons and neutrons yeah the, pro the the protons and neutrons are made of what are called up and down quarks and then there's a very important cousin of the uh, electron called the neutrino and um that family of things and then the other interactions would have been just fine to make a lot of what we encounter in the universe um but for reasons that uh, are still unexplained there's another family and so you have another pair of quarks called the charmed and strange quark, and then they have their uh, electron, which is the muon, and it has um, its cousin, which is the muon neutrino, and um, and then it doesn't stop there. There's another family called the, the the top and bottom quark, or the truth and beauty quark, depending on who you talk to, which are even heavier, and they have their version of the electron, which is the tauon. And so, and you, you you may have thought this goes on forever, but in fact, it's been shown that at least below a certain mass range, um, that's it. There are three of these families. So, in the three families in my lifetime, I mean, quite recently, everybody's going on and on about where do you get mass? Where do these particles get mass? And it's from the Higgs boson, right? Is is the Higgs separate from these three families, or does it somehow fill in the last square on the? Yeah, the, the Higgs sort something. of connects them all together. Its job in all of this is to 
make these things not massless. So the particles all start out um, as essentially having no mass. And there's a mechanism by which they interact with, if you like, they interact with the, the Higgs boson, and that gives them the masses um, that they have. So this whole thing is so fascinating. All right. Do you go to Fermilab and work? Do you go to the Large Hadron Collider or Hadron Collider and look at these pictures? Like, I have a bow tie with a picture of the paths of the particles from the LHC after some collision. And this is, I guess, intended to help me understand the fundamental qualities of the universe. But it is cool. And I do realize how complex the whole thing is. But do you go there and look at these pictures? Do you design these experiments to produce these pictures? Oh, I, 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 uh, I, I wish I did, but um, I'm, I'm in a different area these days. So a long time ago, when I was uh, much younger, I spent uh, a good amount of time at CERN, in fact, um, as a student, helping build detectors. But that was, uh, that was a temporary distraction before I went off to study things like um, string theory and quantum gravity and things like that. What is string theory? Is a string an object? Yes. I mean, in the same sense that you talk about these elementary particles as objects, but they're point-like, you can basically ask the question, just arbitrarily, you could go, well, why do they have to be points? Why, why, why do they have to be little points and why not uh, extended objects? Like a line in geometry. You just, here's a point, here's a exactly. line. Exactly. Uh, you, you can just ask it as a, as, a, as a geometrical question. So that's one way into the enterprise. You could just go, what if I take the same rules that um, I did before, which is I take quantum physics and I take point particles and I just try and write down something that makes sense where I have things interacting with each other. I also need relativity. So I throw special relativity and uh, quantum physics together and points and I get the standard, you know, I get the tools that we use for the standard model. Uh, you could ask, well, what if I just did the same thing, but instead I used extended objects like uh, a string? So that's one sort of mathematically motivated way into uh, getting into string theory. But there's another way of getting into string theory, uh, several other ways. But one other way is to go, well, what explains all these patterns in the standard model I was just telling you about? There we go. Yeah. So you start with the experiment. And right. then try and to figure this, out what this happened. Is, this is why people popularly talk about yeah, a theory of everything. You're, you're trying to figure out a unified explanation of, like, why is there all this stuff? Well, not just why is there all this stuff, but what, what are these patterns? It, it, you know, the, the standard model is a wonderful, wonderful thing. It's an incredible achievement. But it is the way it is, and, and there's no reason for that. And, and, you know, we like reasons for things. So you could go, well, why is it the way it is? Why does it have these three... Uh, families that repeat itself. And and just to begin to torture you with the usual sort of analogies people start bringing in when they talk about string theory, there's usually these musical analogies. And what I just told you about the patterns, the repeating, getting heavier, might remind you of a musical structure. If you look at a piano, right, and you, ha you have an octave of notes and everything's fine, but then it repeats and it repeats. You have the same notes, but they get at higher and higher frequency, and that's like getting at more and more energy. It's like getting more and more mass. It's like there's some sort of structure there that requires a deeper explanation, a, a, a theory that underlies the standard model. Well, it's the same. It's analogous, if I may. A point, you just need X and Y and Z, maybe. But a line, you need X, Y, Z and a direction and an angle and who knows what, right? So... Uh, if they to take that analogy, just lines you need more information. So if you're trying to explain stuff, maybe you need a more complicated yeah explanation. Um, and oftentimes, well, it sometimes starts looking as though you're getting more complicated. But what you're actually trying to do is to find more simplicity. In the same sense that, mm. in the same mm. sense that, when we go back to things like protons and neutrons, right, which we, we knew there are protons and neutrons and they make up the nucleus. So no, that's really interesting. But then there are all these other kinds of particles people began to find when they started crunching nuclei together. And it was, it was a zoo of many, many different kinds, dozens and dozens of different kinds of particles you could make in these experiments. So you could just go, well, that's, that's life. 
right? There's, there's dozens and dozens of kinds of these different particles in nuclear physics until it was realized, oh, actually, all I need is a smaller number of quarks building blocks that you put them together in different ways and you get all of these different kinds of objects. So it starts out sounding like you're doing a more complicated thing, but it's actually in the quest to simplify by finding um, uh, so some you're underlying saying that rules. Are you are you saying <laughs> that string theory simplifies things? No, I'm saying that string theory was born of the quest to do so. It is still unknown as to whether it will work. It's still ongoing research. But I'm so, but, okay. but you're, you're asking about the motivations. So I'm telling you the motivations. There's a oh third, no, it's great. Yeah, there's, there's a third motivation I want to tell you about. Because, good, good, uh, good. Uh, Excellent. Because, Go ahead. Because it's the one that excites me most these days. Although originally I was. I was one of those kids who was, you know, reading up on, oh, you know, oh, there's this kind of particle and this kind of particle. And, you know, that was exciting. And then I got into string theory because I heard that it was it was going to help us understand the next level. But there's a whole other thing, which is uh, one of the embarrassing things about the standard model is that it doesn't talk about one of the most important interactions, arguably the most important interaction, which is gravity. And so yeah. you big fan, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 uh, it's it's very important, right? And as we know from Einstein, it's the physics of space and time itself, which is you know where we keep our stuff. So we'd like to understand it. And um, the standard model does not uh, help you understand gravity at the quantum level, right? Uh, nature is intrinsically quantum mechanical, it seems, from everything we've looked at. And so it would seem that at some level. The picture where forces are subject to the rules of quantum physics, like all the others are, should apply to gravity. And when you try using the standard model to do that, or the tools that the standard model uses, which is called quantum field theory, it, it, it doesn't work. The next question then is, how do we formulate what's, what's called these days a quantum theory of gravity, quantum gravity? One of the other motivations for string theory was that um, it describes a quantum theory of gravity. In fact, that's one of the things it does best. So when you say describes, it can make predictions? Well, it describes, as I, so I was very careful and I said, it describes a quantum theory of gravity. We don't know whether it's the quantum theory of gravity that nature cares about, but it's the best working one we have, so we're trying to understand it. So, so well, I'm, yeah. I, I'm under a tree, I'm, in, I'm outside of London, I'm sitting under an apple tree. I see an apple fall down. And I say to myself... Quantum gravity. I, I say to myself, <laughs> well, the apple, not only is the earth pulling the apple down, but the apple must somehow be ever so slightly pulling the earth up. And isn't that wonderful? What does quantum gravity string theory help me understand the apple and the earth? What does it do for me? It'll not be the best place to try and uh, ask questions about quantum gravity. You, you, can, you, you can basically stick with Newton for pretty much any question you'll want to ask about that apple in that tree. You could pretty much stick with Newton. All right, now, now I've got a telescope in, in, uh, at the Lick Observatory. Uh-huh. I, I'd, I'd like to send you down to Chile, if I may. Oh, Chile, to, oh, yes. Yeah, Let's yeah, go yeah, to the come, Take you to the, to the very large yes. telescope in Chile. Very large, huge. Yeah. And uh, I'm looking out there, and I can see what seems to be the shadow of a star that's so massive, light can't escape. Nice. Now we're getting uh, there. Yeah, yeah. The light's going around something between me and this distant star. And there's an apple falling into a black hole. And an apple's falling into a black hole. What is quantum string... Quantum gravity string theory do for me in that situation? Well, what we hope is that we might have an understanding of what that thing you're looking at is. So right now, black holes are, are out there. Um, as far as we can tell, they're, uh, they're quite ubiquitous objects in the universe. If you start thinking about quantum physics in the neighborhood of a black hole, you run into trouble. There's a, this is one of the reasons uh, Stephen Hawking is famous, because he, he was one of the people who was thinking about 
the fact that uh, quantum physics tells you things like the, uh, the, the, the nature of the vacuum of space is very quantum mechanical. It's seething with all kinds of activity, which might bring us back to muons eventually. Um, and, uh, we'll, don't worry, we, we will get there. Good, good, seething, good, good, good. seething with <laughs> the vacuum of space is seething. Right. It's seething with all kinds of activity. So that includes, for example, very real physical processes where um, you can have positron-electron pairs, any particle and its antiparticle can just temporarily pop into existence in the vacuum and then disappear again. They annihilate. Now, if you stick something in the way that is sensitive to this process, you'll, you'll, you'll get important effects. And these are sorts of things we measure a lot in, uh, in particle physics. So what's the thing we stick in the way of the thing? What thing are we well, sticking in the way I'm going to give you of? an example. The, Here we go. Uh, Here good, we go. Good. Right. So gravity, on the one hand, tells you that you have this one-way, this one-way door, right? Which is the black hole horizon. You know the famous fact that right. there's the, a, the, a apple, the apple goes in, the apple does not come out exactly. of the black hole. Things go and in. Where and, does it go? And what happens to the energy? Okay, and that would be are. perfectly fine um, in in classical physics. It would be still spectacular, but uh, there'd be nothing wrong with that, um, except that if you have such a one-way barrier. Um, and then you also have quantum physics. This quantum process I was telling you about, so now along comes a, a, a particle-antiparticle pair, so an electron and a positron, and they split apart temporarily, and then they're going to recombine and everything's just fine. But what if one of them fell behind the horizon? They just happen to be, it just happens to happen at the horizon, and one of them falls in, but the other doesn't. Now, all, all of right. a sudden, you have what looks to somebody who's outside the black hole looking at this situation, all of a sudden they see what looks to be a particle created by the black hole, that's what it would look like, coming out at them. It looks like something escaped. It looked like something escaped. The, the point is, is that these, um, what are called virtual processes, which is an unfortunate term. Why is that an unfortunate term? Because it makes them sound like they're not real, that, that, that they don't have any real effect, but they do have a real effect. Um, so it, it, historically, we have a lot of unfortunate terms in science that uh, for historical reasons, we stick with them, but they can be misleading. Well, that's the, the charm, Indeed. if I may, of beauty, charm, mm, color. Right. You guys using these regular words to describe these extraordinary things. Oh, it's a black hole. Well, what you got there is a big bang. Uh, that's not what you got there. That's what I love about neutrino. It's like, it's just a little neutral one. It's a little neutrino. <laughs> the cutest. Okay, so... The pair is out there. One of them ends up in the black hole. The other one is out, the other half of the pair. Yeah, the, is out the there. language I people can would use it. is that in some ways the black hole makes that virtual pair creation process. It makes it real in the sense that it makes it seem like the black hole is actually emitting a radiation uh -huh. process. Uh -huh. And this is the origin so of what's so, called so, Hawking so, so, radiation. So, somehow, like the universe outside the black hole is stealing something from inside the black hole. In a way, yes, because when you do the calculation fully, you realize that the black hole is indeed radiating stuff out, and it's losing mass. So, whoa, whoa, it's, whoa! It's, the black hole's running backward. Uh, right, that's impossible, man. Wait a second. I thought I knew all about black holes because so quantum physics makes black holes radiate, and uh, if you follow this through all the way, you'll find that it creates a plethora of difficulties. Um, for, for ordinary physics, um, not the least being the fact that the, the black hole can sort of suck everything in. Well, that's what I grew up with. Right, but then emit only sort of random radiation stuff. And it's, it turns out to be a way of destroying something that we think is very dear, which is the, the information contained in matter. Ah, yes. So like if ah, an, yes. a, an apple goes in and it's an apple with an identity, right. and stuff that comes out is just bleh, it's energy just with no identity. Yeah, in, in, a, in a way, yeah. And, 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 and that's a problem because the universe isn't supposed to do that. Stick around for more science rules after this. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 
50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. If you have kids or pets, you know stains and odors in your carpet and upholstery are inevitable. But the experts at ChemDry can help. ChemDry removes odors and stubborn stains by sending millions of carbonating bubbles deep within your carpet. ChemDry lifts dirt, urine, and stains to the surface to then be extracted away, giving you a cleaner and healthier home. Call 1-800-CHEMDRY or visit ChemDry.com to connect with your local ChemDry and learn about special offers in your area. That's 1-800-CHEMDRY or visit ChemDry.com today. Science Rules is back. These are kind of extreme cases of just how the universe works. These are things that are going on underneath all of us all the time. It's just, it's what we live in. And I'm, I'm wondering how you think about it philosophically. You know, is this, is this sort of solving the question of, of life, of the, you know, the universe of sort of who we are? Or is it more about this, you know, the, sort of following this detective process all the way to its end? What, what motivates you here? Um, all of the above. It, it's certainly fun. Um, and interesting, and it's nice to sit and go, well, why does that thing uh, do do the thing it does? I think we all have that basic curiosity, um, uh, starting out as children, just it's a matter of survival. It's a way of learning how to navigate the world, right? But you're also just curious for the heck of it. And, and so as a kid, I would take things apart and just to see how they worked. And then, you know, you try and put them back together and there's always a few screws left over, but, you know, still seems to work. You don't tell anyone. But, um, but at the end of the day, it's curiosity. But it's also very important for understanding what, you know, why we're here. Because I, I just told you the beginning of a little bit of a puzzle and a paradox to do with horizons and virtual particles, and it sounds all very abstract. But that same set of questions, finding quantum gravity is also important for understanding the origin of the entire universe. Because uh, I, I could run you through another thought process about the very, very early universe, which leads you to worry about how gravity works quantum mechanically. Let's, let's do it. Let's go there. The, at, at the beginning, you know, which is the Big Bang or before the Big Bang. All right. So all of that quantum stuff that took place there uh, gives rise to you know this 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 uh, this big bang. It gives rise to all of the stuff that we see around us that has clumped together to form galaxies, and you know within that are solar systems and and you know planets, and somewhere on that we formed right. So so without understanding all of that quantum stuff of gravity, we don't understand why we're here ultimately. So it is yeah. all it is all sort of part of that big. Question. Oh, it's the deep question. So. Along this line, you made reference to, well, if you do the calculations, the following thing is apparent. When you do the calculations, are you using a supercomputer? Are you using envelope backs? Just what sort of, what happens on a Thursday? You get up on a Thursday, what do you do? Yeah, um, a lot of calculations um, are on paper with actual pencils. Oh yeah, you're out shopping. And you got your shopping list, and uh, before you know it, it's covered in equations, and you can't read what you came out shopping for because it's, you had an idea. So we scribble on whatever we can, um, especially as a way of at least shaping some of the core ideas. Sometimes you can do a complete calculation. Uh, a lot of the a lot of the stuff I was telling you about properties of elementary particles going back uh, many decades. Those calculations you you can fit on a on a largish piece of paper and they get larger and larger as the theory gets more complicated. But oftentimes we then combine that or set up calculations that you're then going to put on very large computational devices. Sometimes it's because you need a lot of accuracy or there's just a lot of moving parts to the calculation. You know, you draw what you talked about, a Feynman diagram, which is a calculational tool that Feynman gave us many decades ago for calculating certain processes that particles do. You might, for a given process, need only to draw four diagrams, and in the, each diagram there's a rule for how to calculate the number, and then you, you kind of add those together and you're done. But there are processes by which you need to understand 10,000 diagrams and make sure you get yeah, the numbers the right time. for all of those. Yeah, so yeah. then it might be helpful to use a, at least a computer to help you do the bookkeeping. So what would you, what would you conclude? What comes out that 
enables us to understand the origin of humankind. Well, what we, what we really are doing is we're computing numbers that then our colleagues go out and measure and, and check um, what's going on. So you're, you're asking questions like the mechanism, right? The, what is the mechanism behind, uh, you know, this thing gets from A to B. How does it do that? The muon goes from this to that. Or, or, or a beam of light gets from one place to another to your eye. How does it do that? What are the processes involved, right? And that, and that, and that is to do with, for example, seeing uh, the kind of object you talked about. There's a, there's, a, there's a black hole in the way, and so there's maybe lens, a lensing process. Gravity is so strong that it bends the light as it goes near the black hole. And so the image of the star that's uh, far behind it is shifted somewhat. So you need to calculate yeah. that number. Depending upon the nature of your calculation, it'll bend this much or this other way. And so somebody needs to go and put their eyeball to a telescope and check that that's correct. And if it's wrong, then your calculation was wrong or your entire theory is wrong. Your entire framework is yeah. wrong. You need to fix it. And, and so it goes on. When I was young, or if I may, when I was young... <laughs> The universe was presumed to be uniquely flat, expanding, 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 slowing down, slowing down, slowing down, without ever stopping expansion. But then 20 years ago, 15 years ago, uh, everybody goes, no, wait, it's accelerating. It's not just expanding, it's accelerating. And then you guys say, well, your problem, what you got there, you got uh, your dark energy. That's a classic dark energy problem. Yeah, it's your dark <laughs> it, matters, it, it, what you're going I mean, You got a runaway universe, it's probably dark energy. It's, your, it's dark matter, that's what's going on. The super string theory, or string theory. Or M theory, into, or a theory of everything, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, does it tie in now with dark matter and dark energy? And then is that quantized? <laughs> Are there darkons, right. particles of dark out there? That, 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 that sounds good, actually. So again, uh, I, I need to emphasize that things like string theory attempt to do that. Uh, we do not know if these attempts are successful yet. The string theory... Um, How is, will we it, know? How uh, will we know? Well, str string theory is one of those um, frustrating ideas to a lot of people because it's full of potential. It's a very, very rich and complicated theory. Unfortunately, people often get a little carried away when they talk about what it potentially might be able to do. And somehow, sometimes aided by, you know, newspaper headlines, they tend to cross over from what it potentially may be able to do to what it actually can do. And the two are very separate. One of the cool analogies people like is, you know, this musical analogy, the fact that you have, say, a guitar string, you can play many different notes on the guitar. And one of the basic ideas in string theory is indeed that different kinds of particles end up just being different vibrations of the same kind of string. And in some sense, that's one of the simplifying ideas. Instead of having lots of different particles, you have one kind of string, and then it vibrates in different ways, and it looks like different particles. Anyway, the point is, is that among the many, many kinds of particles that string theory can produce, which kind of look like they could be standard model particles, it also says, hey, but there's other kinds of particles that come with that. And so those are potential candidates for being particles we haven't discovered yet. And some of them are often of the, uh, you know, of the right character. They are of the right sort of mass range, uh, uh, not interacting very much, and so could be dark matter. But the point is, is that it has a whole list of those. Um, and so that isn't really a prediction of anything because you need, you need something to say, no, it predicts this very specific one. If it just says, hey, there's a whole bunch of them, that's not a prediction. So that's where we are right now. There's potential, but, um, but no predictive power yet because we don't understand the theory well enough. Okay, so hold on. I want, I want to come back to this muon discovery or this muon uh, detection that got people very worked up. Is the reason it got people so worked up because anytime you see something that doesn't fit, that could be that could be a sign that you're seeing one of those new particles, or it's a way to kind of yes. like test whether these theories are on the right track. Is that why people get so excited when they're always looking for something that's wrong with the standard model? Yeah, uh, well, wrong is a, is a, is a, is a loaded word, but sure. The point is is that we know that this can't be the end of it all, right? The the standard model can't be the whole story for the reasons Bill mentioned, right? 
it explains uh, a lot of the observable matter that we that we've understood uh, and observed um, around the universe, but we actually only know that that's just a few percent of the entire ball game, right? So we're clearly not done yet. Um, also, there's patterns, as I talked about in the standard model, that have no explanation. So that tells you that you don't really fully understand it. That there's got to be some additional features. So what you're looking for is what's called physics beyond the standard model that'll tell you what that new physics is. The other reason it's interesting is because a whole bunch of us are sitting around playing with these marvelous things called string theory and other things. And it's clear that we need help. We need help from nature to tell us which of these wonderful things we're playing with is the right direction to go in. So we're desperate to get advice from nature because that's how we've traditionally uh, done things in the past. We get clues from nature. Someone does an experiment that needs to be explained. And that really focuses the mind on which theory works because you, you kind of have some clues as to how to proceed. So this is why people are excited um, to find what's called beyond the standard model physics. And so um, you look wherever you can for clues. It was, it was one of the reasons that Large Hadron Collider was built. It was built not just to confirm the Higgs mechanism, it was built as a discovery machine, a machine that would confirm the Higgs, yeah. but then go on to just find stuff that we can't explain. Well, it's this, uh, this old thing that we say all the time, what are you guys going to find? We don't know. That's why we built this thing. Exactly. Yeah. So typically, yeah. that's how you do things. Um, you build to confirm what you understand, and then hopefully to discover new things. So this is what's going on with the muon. Something isn't adding up. And that's super exciting. Science Rules will be right back. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. You're listening to Science Rules. People are fascinated with this stuff. Most of us, it's beyond us. Most of us don't run these equations. Most of us don't. You guys have to make up your own notation sometimes, right? Yeah, sometimes like we make up entire it, new kinds of mathematics. Just for kicks. But we're all fascinated with it. And so that's where we get all these science fiction things. And so much of science fiction, I mean, since anybody wrote anything, has to do with time travel. You're involved with the uh, Science and Entertainment Exchange, right? Yeah, they call me from uh, time to time. You worked on Agent Carter. You worked on Star Trek Discovery and stuff. And what, what is your role when you do that? It depends upon the project. I work on trying to understand the universe that we live in with all of its wonder and weirdness and all of that good stuff right? And trying to understand the rules by which it works. So if you, as a, as, a, as a writer, as a filmmaker, are trying to make a fictional universe in which to set your story, I, I can help you um, with the rules of that universe. It might be different. So I do a lot of stuff for Marvel, for example, and, and their universe clearly doesn't work uh, like ours. What's the difference between the Marvel universe <laughs> and our universe? No, no magic flying hammers. Haven't, haven't seen one. You mean we, we haven't seen one yet? <laughs> right, indeed. My point is, is that I can I can help them um, at least uh, at least help their universe feel real. Although clearly their physics is somewhat somewhat different in 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 various ways, and and so so I do a lot of science advising where people are 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 writing stories that are getting us excited, that are entertaining us, um, and sometimes I can help them sometimes with a a science storyline. Or sometimes they're playing with a bit of science just as this is background that I can help help them uh, make it feel more um, self-consistent, you hope for. So this is a cool question. So it sounds like your goal is not so much to try to sneak real science in there, but to sort of sneak 
the science mindset or the is sort yes. of a, a, a way of logical thinking into these stories. Is that is that what you're saying? Exactly. I, I'm not there, and I, I often try and tell more and more filmmakers, please, we're not there to give a grade, right? I'm, I'm, you know, there are science advisors who think their job is to simply tell you what you did wrong, and that's just not interesting, frankly. What you're really going for, in my opinion at least, is to make sure that it, it, it makes sense at least within the two hours. You spent, you spent your 15 bucks or whatever it is. You don't want to be insulted during that time. You, you at least want to not pop out of the story because you're worried that the thing that happened just now doesn't match the thing that happened, you know, in the opening scenes or what have you. Or, you know, that character just isn't believable because no scientist would ever say something like that or, or act that way. What's an example where you gave him a nudge? You mentioned Agent Carter, for example, which is a, a Marvel TV series from some years back. I, I helped on season two, and they, they called me in because they wanted to know how some weird material made everything cold and maybe came from another universe or something like that. So that got me thinking about real physics. It got me thinking about um, extraordinary materials that we know work here on Earth in a weird way when you drop below certain temperatures, things called superfluids. So I started talking with them about the properties of these exotic materials and uh, how that might gel with what they're doing. And, uh, and then they go, okay, well, you know, that's kind of nice, but, but then how, if this thing is super cold and making things go weird when it touches things, how would you grab it? How would you contain it? So they, so, so they came back to me sort of to ask that. So I said, well, typically we use magnetic fields. These, these things tend to yeah. respond mm -hmm. to magnetic fields and you can suspend it with a magnetic field. And so that was kind of fun. So I ended up drawing them some diagrams that, of <laughs> what the machine like that would look like. That ended up turning into machines that they actually built on set as part of a story. Then they needed a scientist who was an expert on this stuff. So that led to a whole new character it then led to, because of various properties of this material, we then ended up doing a deep dive into the kinds of place it may have come from if it didn't come from, from, from here on Earth. This then connected to a whole bunch of other Marvel Universe things and, and fed into storylines there. So I guess what I'm getting at um, is, is the fact that you, you can come in as a science advisor and just go, you know, oh, this is right, this is wrong. This is, you got this right. No, they should pronounce it this way. And that's, that's an important job to do. But you can get the science working in the DNA of the storytelling if you, if you, if you have a longer conversation. And then mm. what the viewer ends up seeing is something that hopefully fits together in a, in a nicer way. The science is now not just kind of a decoration, but it's, it sort of fits in the story better. People are thinking scientifically about the challenges. Right, well, they're using. I was wondering, do you, is, they're do you using think, a thought there... process to get out of problems. They're not just blowing stuff up. Yeah. Do, so, do you think there's a there's a sort of a rub off effect that if you know if the fiction is done well, that it inspires people to think a little more scientifically? Yeah, I I, abs I absolutely do. If they don't think about things more scientifically themselves, they at least appreciate that it's a it's a it's a way of problem solving. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's an alternative to you know blowing stuff up or punching somebody in the face. And, and then they appreciate what scientists actually do and who they are. One of my other kind of, uh, I, I consider it to be my most important job, which is never, uh, you know, in this, in this advising game, which is never why I'm called in, is who's doing the science. Breaking the cliche of the scientists having a certain, a certain kind of look and a certain kind of image that they always have in these, in these science uh, stories showing that there's a much wider variety of people who do science, right? Just ordinary people, not the sort of weirdo or the socially awkward, blah, 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 or the, you know, all of those things. Shake up that, that casting a little bit and have, and have a wider, um, wider range of people doing science. Because that, 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 that then reminds people that science is for everybody, not just a special group. And there for, you go. for me, that's way more important than can you hear a sound in space or not? I mean, sure, right. you know, get that right if you can, but it's much more important to go, who's doing the science to get that right on screen? The one that everybody runs afoul with is time travel. Yes, yes. 
So can you go back in time? Can you meet yourself back in time? Could you give history a nudge and change the course of it? And so on. And you were just talking about, so how do you handle time travel when you're in a consultant? Good. So again, it depends upon what they're trying to do and how deep a dive they want to do. But let's take a step back. Let's talk about the real science for a moment, which is, um, well, is time travel possible? So one of the things I often spend a lot of time on is, is the issue of, are we, going, are we time traveling into the past or into the future? We're all going into the future. Ah, yes. But can you go to the future faster? So the answer is yes. And we do understand due to, it's built into um, what in relativity is called time dilation. Uh, you know, the effect of slowing time down for a given person is equivalent to them time traveling faster into the future. This is the twin paradox. One twin's here on Earth, the other guy's flying around at relativistic speeds. He comes back, all this time has passed right. on Earth, but out there. Right. And, you know, and time uh, travels faster in, in orbit above the Earth uh, compared to the rate at which it travels down here on Earth. And those differences are detectable and very important. Your GPS units wouldn't work without it. Right. So the flexibility of time is what I'm getting at here. Is, is very well understood in physics. Oh, and by the way, those muons, because let's keep calling back to the muons, those muons that they, uh, that they, that they play around with in those, uh, in those rings in those experiments, those muons live longer because they're moving at super fast speeds as they spin around in those experiments. So high relative speeds and uh, uh, changes in gravitational fields and stuff like that really can affect time, uh, the rate of time uh, uh, for different objects. And so in that way, you can manipulate uh, time in such a way that you can time travel in, in, a, in, in, in some sense. The, one of the questions then is, can you time travel into the past? And that's where we're... And that's what then leads to all of these difficulties that Corey was talking about with paradoxes, etc. Now, we don't know if nature has a way of resolving these paradoxes. So that's fun, because you then get to speculate. Um, either time travel is just completely forbidden into the past and you're done, or you can, but there's rules. The bottom line is we don't know the answer. Everything we understand about uh, time and uh, quantum physics, what have you, would suggest that maybe the the conservative answer is the correct one. You know, the other, the other thing people often say is, well, there's no, there's no time travelers from the future here, so clearly you can't time travel because we would discover it arbitrarily far in the future and come back here, and no, no one has done that, and therefore there's no time travel. But again, there's many, many ways out of that, um, that pseudo-argument. Um, so the point is, is that we don't know. <laughs> so that means I can go to filmmakers and I can tell them you have carte blanche to play with this, but play carefully because you don't want to run into uh, annoying paradoxes, at least within the two hours of the movie that the viewer is watching. So, so that's a long wind up to say that different films, different filmmakers, different storytellers uh, uh, have different rule sets. Or if they're smart, they don't show you enough to show you what their rules are. They just show you uh, enough to get the story going. But yes, you can have paradoxes. So sometimes the paradoxes are resolved by saying, well, the universe has ways of uh, avoiding the paradoxes. So very famously, going back to some of the earliest writing, you go back in time and you attempt to do something that would change the course of history. Uh, all you need to do is to go back in time and break the chain of causality that stops you from being able to get a time machine and go back in time. And there you have a paradox, right? So famously, that's called the grandfather paradox, right? You go back and you, you kill an ancestor. And so you, you would never have been born. And therefore, you can't go back in time to do that. So that's the kind of paradox that people worry about. You could maybe think, well, nature has mechanisms by which if you try and do that, you keep running into things that stop you from doing that, right? You go back and you attempt to do the event, but then you trip up 
just at the crucial moment or something goes wrong, there's a power outage or something, right? Some random thing or seemingly random thing keeps happening to stop you from breaking that chain. Right, exactly. But it, but it, but it's nature protecting itself. So, so uh, if you want to be fancy, you would give it a name and you'd say, you would say there's some sort of chronology protection mechanism. Now I know why they call you. <laughs> okay, so hang on, hang on. Was there a movie or show that came close that did okay with time travel? Um, this is tricky. Um, there, there are problems with nearly all of them in some ways, depending upon how closely you look. I mean, Primer is usually the Primer movie that Primer is usually held up as, as, as one of my favorites. And it's one of my favorites, not just because of whether it gets all the detail right, is whether it gets it right tonally. I, I really loved just the way the movie felt and, and, and the way the scientists discover the little weird effect and then and then sort of try and experiment some more and see how it worked and what have you and then engineer the the device and i love how that all felt it felt very real the way they interacted with each other and what have you and i I guess i i'm somewhat seduced i give a movie a lot of points if it gets if it gets all of those things right and may forgive it some errors here and there I'm, i'm not maybe not the the best um a person for giving grades just on the science alone, because I think that's not the point no, of movies. You, your whole thing is more than just the exactly. science. You want the story to be, yeah. Hey, Corey. Oh, Bill. Corey, wait a second. There's what a, there's is an, that? There's an interdimensional sound. No, it's not it's an interdimensional electromagnetic sound. It's, it's definitely from this dimension. It's the sound of thunder indicating to me that lightning is striking. Uh, now, Clifford, that means that uh, we're about to enter the lightning round. Oh, my goodness. I didn't know about this. This is exciting. Here we go. Back when we had dinner parties, perhaps you remember, how did you explain your work to a regular person there at dinner, a non-theoretical physicist? Oh, easy. I I, I would say that um, I ask origins questions. Where does everything come from? What is it made of? And what are we all doing here? And what are we all doing here? And um, and who made (laughs) this all? So speaking of movies, speaking of movies, what is the worst one? What is the most egregious breach of science in movie history? Oh, I go off the top of my head. Oh, my goodness. I can't think of one. There's there's so so many. many. Just pick pick one that drove you crazy. Oh, how about this? Did you like Interstellar? I loved Interstellar. I'll tell you why I loved it. It goes back to something that Kip Thorne, who was you know, one of the originators of the whole idea for that film and ultimately the science advisor for it goes back to something he and I used to talk about a lot, um, um, which is, wouldn't it be great to have a movie where you have a lot of science fiction-y looking stuff in there that people think is wrong or exaggerated and it turns out that it's actually real because general relativity, the theory of gravity as you know, confirmed, uh, given to us by Einstein and confirmed by uh, any number of experiments and observations is before you do any science fiction, it is bonkers and bizarre and amazing. Yeah. Wouldn't it be great to have a film? A wormhole is a sphere. Right, yes. That puts some of that <laughs> bonkers stuff on screen and that's actually real. That for me is one of the reasons I love Interstellar because people go, you know, I, I, you know, I speak to audiences about this stuff, time and what have you. And I have people go, what thing in Interstellar, um, sciencey thing you, you think is science fiction? And people often go to their favorite being, they go down to the surface of this planet and then they come up a few hours later and 22 years have gone by. Clearly that's bonkers. No, that's actually a thing. Yes, that's actually a thing. That's, t- that's time dilation. <laughs> What's the most fun you've ever had putting science into a movie or a TV show? Oh, uh, probably going back to Agent Agent Carter season two. You know, the business of oftentimes physicists are asked to give things that will be put on blackboards, uh, you know, on the chalkboards that's right, in yeah, some equations. Yes. On the Big and, Bang Theory, there was a guy that worked that full time. Right, right. On whiteboards. So, yeah. so I actually fed them a lot of stuff that was not just the usual, you know, equals MC squared and Schrodinger's equation. I put in a ton of stuff, given the science that they were trying to figure out with the Marvel stuff to do with superpowers and what have you. It was a period piece, Agent Carter, was in the 50s. So what I did is I filled the boards with period-appropriate equations 
<laughs> of people trying to figure out the structure of matter. So they're very important models due to Oppenheimer and Dirac. And that was and cool and fun. And it's all, yeah, no it's cool. one knows, right? But it's if you go back to the Well, now they, they call those things Easter eggs. You'll see like on a the chalkboard. Yeah, yes. <laughs> period appropriate equations. So that was so kind of So we're in fun. the lightning round. Clever. Yeah, we're, we're in the lightning round. What's the most misunderstood thing about your work? I think the most misunderstood thing is that we, uh, the people doing this kind of work, are are weird uber geniuses of a special kind uh, whose brains are designed to do this kind of work, and that most people can't do it. And I think that's a mistake, and it's a problem. This kind of work is accessible to everybody, all different kinds of people. Just sit and think and learn your algebra. People. Exactly. So let me ask you this. Is time quantized? Does time move in discrete packets instead of a continuum? Um, well, I'm going to give a, a two-part answer. So Einstein told us that space and time are connected, and so we have space-time. What we're trying to understand in quantum gravity is how space and time are quantized in some sense. And so the question you're asking is really, are there, are there things like, uh, you know, elementary particles, atoms of space and time itself, some sort of underlying structure? Yeah, an indivisible and the answer unit. is we don't know. But um, the analogy I like to give is water. You have uh, a glass of water and it's splashy and fluid and it can change its shape and what have you. So that's like space and time as we understand it now. But there's another understanding of space and uh, of water, which is water molecules, right? No particular water molecule knows about all of those sort of fluid properties, but it's still water. So maybe there's some description of space-time that's like the water molecule description of water. And that's what we're trying to get at. So that would be like the quantized. Oh, wow. That is cool. That's an analogy, my friend. Oh, thank you. That is cool. This is, where no, I get to no, plug my, this is where I get to plug my graphic novel and say, that's one of the uh, analogies in there. Um, uh, but yeah. Oh, wait, hold on. What is the title of your graphic novel? Because if you're going to do a plug, <laughs> let's plug <laughs> oh, it. Thank you. It's got to be a complete plug, not just a yes. fraction of a plug. Oh, it's a nonfiction graphic novel called The Dialogues, Conversations on the Nature of the Universe. Cool. cool. <laughs> All right, so Corey, Corey, this one's for you, Corey. All right, Clifford, I have to ask because I know that you did some work on Star Trek Discovery. A little bit, and yeah. uh, actually, so Star Trek Discovery, there were a couple things about that show that drove me absolutely bonkers. Only a couple. And uh, okay, okay, so here, this is what I have to ask you about. So the second season, there's a whole plot element that you know that seven signals appear simultaneously across the galaxy. Oh yeah, and I'm watching it like simultaneously. From where? Like, it's a question of simultaneity. Yeah. You can't just have things yeah. appear simultaneously across the galaxy. Yeah. Um, and the whole plot depends on it. Did they not call you? Is that what went wrong? Yeah, they did not call me. It, it is not clear that they called any scientist. The Star Trek Discovery whole process there was interesting. They Before they... Interesting. We'll go with well, interesting. Well, in the sense that they, were, they wanted to start developing a new show. And they did a great thing, which is that they called in a room full of scientists. And we had a great conversation about the kind of science that they wanted to showcase and, and to use in part of their storytelling. And so that was great and very promising. They then, they would call and ask for ideas, but they wouldn't tell you how they were planning to use them. So in, in, in other words, what they're looking for a lot of no times context, is buzzwords. Yeah. buzzwords they, they want yes. some fun, sciencey sounding stuff. But so they, they can say keep, inverse tachyon beam but, and right, things like that. But they're that, keeping yes. it very secret as to how um, uh, they're going to use it. And, and w my favorite way of working with filmmakers is to go, I, I can tell you this buzzword, but actually if you tell me what you're trying to achieve in terms of story elements, I can help you use it right. So they typically don't do that. So you get a lot of buzzwords and a lot of cool sounding stuff. It's a bit more surface. And, you know, that's fine. That's the way they like to do things. So I, I would say just, you know, go with it with Star Trek, but don't expect... Don't stress out, yeah, Corey. Yeah, don't stress it, because that's not that's not their jam. They're not interested in getting the science right. They're interested not in... Their the jam. Jam. Yeah. I can even, I can even go with, like, the, there, there's, a, there's a, a fungal network that allows you to travel through space. Okay, that's your <laughs> MacGuffin. I'm, I'm with you. But simultaneity is a thing! Yeah. Sorry. I just had to get that off my chest. I wanted to help them more, but they, they wouldn't let me. It's their loss, doggone it. But you do help make Hollywood more scientific. 
And we all appreciate that here at Science Rules. Our guest today has been Dr. Clifford Johnson, theoretical physicist at the University of Southern California, member of the Science and Entertainment Exchange, and author of the nonfiction graphic book, The Dialogues. They're uh, 12 in a carton. They make great Mother's and Father's Day gifts, as you know. So remember, when it comes to making education more entertaining and entertainment more educational, Science science rules. rules. If you like Science Rules, please take a moment to rate and review it on Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us out, helps other people learn about the show, helps us find out what you want to hear about. And check us out on the Hark app, where you can see some of my favorite moments from Science Rules and share your own playlists of all your favorite shows at harkaudio.com. Thank you. Be sure to look at all my socials that the kids are always clicking around on for more information about upcoming guests. Uh, I'm at Bill Nye on all those things. Meanwhile, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, give us a call at 201-472-0785 or submit your question to askbillnye.com. Science Rules is produced by Harry Huggins and the very same Corey S. Powell. Woo! Frank Olson mixed this episode. Casey Halford composed our original theme. Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. And at Stitcher, Science, Science Rules. Rules. Stitcher. If you have kids or pets, you know stains and odors in your carpet and upholstery are inevitable. But the experts at ChemDry can help. ChemDry removes odors and stubborn stains by sending millions of carbonating bubbles deep within your carpet. ChemDry lifts dirt, urine, and stains to the surface to then be extracted away, giving you a cleaner and healthier home. Call 1-800-CHEMDRY or visit ChemDry.com to connect with your local ChemDry and learn about special offers in your area. That's 1-800-CHEMDRY or visit ChemDry.com today. 